Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Goose and Maverick. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Mount Crest Inn. Forget all your worries in our luxurious showers at Mount Crest Inn. What is that from? <laughs> I don't know what any of these are from. Oh, my gosh. It's been too long. Welcome to uh, The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is the show where we like to break down and analyze a film, try to pick it apart, figure out what makes it tick from a variety of standpoints. Sometimes it's right. theme, sometimes it's camera movement, the cinematic language of film, storytelling and film, and who knows, editing like it all dovetails into communicating a story to the users yeah. or to the viewer, I should say. There's, there's so many mediums that can do this kind of thing, but film in particular is really hard to do it in a way that's realistic, but also believable and so that people can actually identify with it. Right. Right. Even if it has nothing to do with their life, like for example, the departed, I don't know any gangsters myself, but at the same time I can, I see this story. I feel it in my, I mean, it's, I feel it in my gut the mm-hmm. whole time pretty much. And I can relate to it even though I have nothing to do with any of the characters. So yeah. no, that's a really good point because telling a good story, even in a world that you don't personally relate to as a viewer watching something or even as a creator creating something. It's tricky, man. There's a lot of like first time storytellers that go in, they try to write and direct a movie and they don't quite understand how to put all those pieces together about why some stories work better than others. And we'll definitely dive into some of that towards the end of the show, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's more about like you know, instead of the actual story, it's about the story of the story. Yeah. Right. And that's when you start getting dream within a dream within a dream. Absolutely. You know? We are yeah. 100% diving into that on this episode. Absolutely. And so this is yeah. going to be really good. That said, if you haven't seen The Departed, we're doing that today in our new studio space. <laughs> so, yeah, let's forgive the echo. I know it sounds really roomy. We're in my new house. And uh, we, uh, as excited as I am about that, it is not set up for a podcast but we just couldn't wait. We wanted to do this. Yeah, we had to. That said, go watch The Departed. If you haven't seen it, pause, come back to this episode because there are so many spoilers ahead. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But we're just really happy to to get back into it. We know we've been away for a few weeks. We are going to dive into a lot of things. We're going to talk about the opening scene, some of the editing, the 180 degree rule, which gets broken time and time again in this film. Uh, We'll do a heavy discussion on theme and a lot more. All right. So as Wes said, there are a lot of spoilers. So here's a synopsis of the film. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it first and pause this and then come on back. An undercover cop and a mole in the police department attempt to identify each other while infiltrating an Irish gang in South Boston. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. Screenplay by William Monaghan. Starring... Leo DiCaprio as Billy Costigan, Matt Damon as Colin Sullivan, Jack Nicholson as Frank Costello, Mark Wahlberg as Dignam, Martin Sheen as Queenan, Vera Farmiga as Madeline, Alec Baldwin as Ellerby. I mean, we have to read all of them. Right? Yeah. 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 What a cast. And makes his own way. No one gives it to you. Have to take it. Non serviam. James Joyce. Smart, Colin. Guineas from the north end down Providence try to tell me what to do. And uh, something maybe happened to him. Uh, maybe, uh, like that. 
chase. She fell funny. Francis, you really should see somebody. When you decide to be something, you can be it. That's what they don't tell you in the church. When I was your age, they would say we could become cops or criminals. Today, what I'm saying is this. When you're facing a loaded gun, what's the difference? That's such a... <laughs> I mean, that... We'll dive into it later, but that really echoes throughout the, the entire film, I think, is really at the heart of it all. But what I like about that, all that opening, too, um, and this is not the opening section I was alluding to earlier. They keep Jack Nicholson, uh, Frank Costello in shadow the entire opening sequence, even whenever they show this full frontal face, he's like heavily backlit. And so his face is still really heavily shadowed. And the one moment he pops out is at that last line when he asks, what's the difference? And that I think is also giving you insight into how he really feels about the world. Yeah. Like, what's, yeah. The, what's the difference between them and me and what all, everything that's happening? Like, yeah, we're all just trying to get ours. Right. Right. It's a great reveal. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. And there's a lot of films that practice the art or the reveal, I guess. But sometimes they're more, they're less revealing about the character and just kind of this, oh, we know you're expecting to see Indiana Jones. And so we'll drag it out as long as possible. Yeah. Here, it's so much more pointed to reveal his character. And so. Not only visually, but, but sonically. I mean, with that line mm. and the delivery. Oh, my God. <laughs> Man, you just believe this guy is the real deal. You do not mess with him. You know, they so set it up nicely. How did you feel? I mean, I know there's probably a lot to dive into. And for the record, like we are so well past when we were originally going to record this. Yeah. And that's totally my fault. But uh, you're not okay, necessarily yeah. two, two man dance. But I postponed because of my schedule going crazy. And it just went off the rails from there. Maybe details are going to elude, but performance wise I feel like that sticks with you were there any performances in here that you're like man hats off to this guy yeah I mean this might have been Leo's best performance that I've seen I mean maybe ever I like DiCaprio he doesn't do movies that I don't like I mean mm -hmm. Even if I don't like the movie necessarily, I like him in it. He's good. But he is that character. You know, he is Billy and he is trapped. It, like, I don't know. I just completely believe him the whole time. I never really see Leonardo DiCaprio. I see Billy. And I mean, there was a clip you were playing a little bit earlier where they were talking under the bridge, arguing under the bridge and just listening to it. I wasn't watching the clip. I was just listening to it while you were watching it. I was, I was just blown away. You know, I mean, and, and not just by Leo. I mean, everybody really, but I mean, Wahlberg is incredible in this film. I mean, just, he hates Billy so much. <laughs> he hates him so much and for really no reason, Yeah, you know, just, <laughs> just because, but his delivery is fantastic. I mean, I, if I had to pick a weak link and it's not even a weak one, just one that doesn't have a whole lot of screen time would be Martin Sheen. And I don't think that he did a bad job. It just, his character wasn't, his character in general wasn't as developed, which I think is fine for the story. It didn't need to be necessarily. That's a really good point because they do rely on his kind of fatherly presence Yeah, to kind of sell, like, you love this guy. And yeah. it's because he's not an asshole, even though I think he's an asshole. If you just... Mm -hmm. This is kind of a problem in, in society is we we conflate someone's demeanor with 
their actions because his demeanor is really good. But at the same time, he has no problem throwing Billy into the, the wolf's den. Oh, yeah. You know, so oh, yeah. from an action standpoint, I hate this guy. Yeah. But I still love him. I hate seeing him throwing over the freaking I know. The, cliff. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah the building, throwing yeah. off the building. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why I, I look at his performances kind of like, you know, not as mm-hmm. amazing is because, and maybe it was amazing because it was very, you know, he played it pretty flat because he needed to be flat. Like he needed to be the one to calm Wahlberg down, you know, when he started attacking, attacking Billy, he needed to be the one to calm Billy down when Billy was freaking out and wanting to get out. Like he needed to be the sane one. And he really was, you know, Mm -hmm. and in a film where everyone, every character is like extreme to the max, just, when you have this kind of, you know, on the rails, you know, subdued character, maybe Mm -hmm. they just fly under the radar, you know? And, and so I'm sitting here talking and I'm, I'm actually thinking, man, he actually did an amazing job too. So (laughs) I can't really pick a a weak link here. I mean, everybody was just incredible. I want to get to the 180 rule because I want to see whenever we start talking about it, I want to see if that explains my feeling while watching the movie because my feeling was a little bit different than I would expect it to be with the amazing performances that I saw with the, um, amazing visuals with the amazing storytelling and, and editing. Oh uh, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. I'm interested to see. Well, we can dive right in then. Okay, cool. So starting with all the cinematography, the opening shot where we're, introducing Frank and Sullivan as a boy and it's kind of kind of an awesome shot right because we start in the street in the middle of the street and we just kind of float into the store and all this action happens you know you have the guy reading his paper on the bench and you have the two kids who walk out uh, looking at their comic book or whatever and then the camera's just just point of view of Frank as it turns out but at the, at the time you don't really know whose point of view we're representing we're just kind of a ghost floating through the scene and then as it gets to the counter we just pivot 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 and Frank slides into the shot it's like oh it was Frank this whole time that was walking in and that's also kind of his presence he's just this titan this thing that's just floating around and there's no obstructions whenever you think about ghosts right they move through walls they nothing obstructs them and it's super subtle I don't even know if that's what they were going for but it's just this beautiful camera movement that is representing his his perspective and he just kind of steps into frame at the last moment and we already talked about him staying in the shadows at the very very beginning all the the montage stuff but going into the editing there's we'll get to the odd edit here in a second that you originally brought up and I was like oh I don't think I'd ever noticed it before but now I can't unnotice it yeah right (laughs) but before that I love the there's some intercutting that's happening where Costello is talking about Billy Costigan and he's talking about trustworthy people and as that scene's happening we start intercutting Sullivan's crime scene and that is I really love that kind of storytelling because Initially, you don't really know what you're looking at. You just suddenly cut to grass and you cut, you're still hearing everything. You're still hearing Bill and Frank having their conversation. And we just kind of start cutting back and forth a little bit before we finally cut over fully to Sullivan's crime scene. And it's such an interesting thing that you start kind of needling the viewer 
like where are we right now and you're you're disorienting them a little bit which we'll certainly get to a lot of that here in here in a moment but i just personally am a fan of that i'm going to start pushing that style of storytelling some films that i'm writing some short films that i'm writing just to see how far i can kind of press that idea but then there's this really strange edit that happens <laughs> where you have frank exiting a bar and then we straight cut to Frank having a discussion about Bill and whether or not Bill is trustworthy. And it's so weird. In his apartment. Yeah. Because that scene that we're exiting, Frank is about to go have sex with someone. I forget if it's like a hooker or his girlfriend. He's about to like have sex in a limousine or whatever. But it just straights cut from Frank to Frank. And it's not like they hide that edit. They don't hide it with B-roll, you know, or an insert of a drink being poured, which I think would would have made the most sense because that's normally what they call a toaster cut, where you're seeing something like in a horror movie when you're seeing whatever Jason or Freddy about to whack some guy in the head. And instead of seeing that contact, you cut to like a sprinkler or toast popping out of the, the toaster. And they call that a toaster cut because you're doing this kind of match cut of action. And it's getting something out of the audience. It's a little hokey, but it's fun. And so in this instance, I, I hear Frank talking about, you know, going to have sex. I might cut to a drink being poured into a glass, like to represent, you know, he just finished, yeah. you know, his climax. Yeah. And it's just kind of this funny, amusing thing that I probably would have done. But they cut from Frank directly to Frank. Like it's him in frame, then it's him in frame again in a completely different context. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder if that was on purpose. Like maybe it's the kind of thing where they just didn't think it's worth, they had some other idea that didn't work out or, and they just said, you know what, that's not worth doing a reshoot for. Cause this is something where you get into the editing room and you start realizing, oh, this scene isn't cutting really well. It's a really important scene. Okay. We have budget left over. We can go and do like four days of reshoots. We can get that scene and along with any other scenes that we need to reshoot and get the extra coverage that we need. That happens all the time. That didn't happen here, <laughs> but that's just me guessing. I'm guessing that it's Scorsese. It is. He's not going to miss that. Probably not. But at the same time, he's still pushing boundaries, man. He blows me away with yeah. how he doesn't get comfortable with one specific style of storytelling. And he's been doing this for decades and decades. I feel like he's still pushing the boundary and still discovering things. So it wouldn't surprise me that he was trying something new and it just didn't work. And he was like, eh, whatever, let's just move it. Let's just go with what we got. <laughs> yeah. I can totally see him doing that. Yeah, no, totally. And it makes me really love him so much more because you see other filmmakers like a Spielberg who kind of get set in their ways and they're like, we're going to tell it in this way. And even though I think Spielberg today doesn't do quite as much pre-production and shot planning because he's so good, he can arrive on the day and he kind of knows it's just in his bones. He knows the way he's going to tell this scene, uh, given the, the room and location. But I think Scorsese is still trying to push the buttons and still reinvent himself every time he goes out to make a new film. And so I don't know why he did that. Yeah, I, guess I mean, I don't, I don't see Spielberg doing anything like that, mm -hmm. trying to push anything or, or it just is a it's so weird because any I mean, t tell me one other director that could do that 
and you, yeah, I mean, you feel a little put off, but you just let it go. You just go with it. You know, I don't know any other director really that, that could get away with it. It's kind of like a singer doing spoken word in the middle of a song. There are very few that can get away with it. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. the best analogy I can come yeah. up with at the, at this very moment, but there's very few and I can't think of any other. That's true. His style and his, cause it's, I, it's like, it's like something that if I've never directed before I would do. Yeah. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, uh, well I'll just speak this thing and you know, or, Oh nope, we're just going to cut from him to him at this place. And it is what it is or whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But then again, you know, Spielberg, when he did Jurassic park, where did, where did the T-Rex come from? At the end, what was it? Camera left or something? Yeah. <laughs> like that was pretty amazing. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you just That's a good point. A guy builds up an amazing career and he's always edgy. Yeah, there's just there's leeway. That yeah, you I, I guess if you have a, a, a catalog of films that have done push the boundaries, that have have broken the rules, have identified the rules, played by them, and then broken them as he has, then you can do whatever you want. And if you have that cast, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Right. And they make it amazing. Yeah. No. Yeah. You can write terrible dialogue, which I don't think he did, but you could. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but in that edit. Uh, Nicholson, did he have the last word on, and then the first word? Mm-hmm. So he was talking, and then, and talking. then he was talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, if you're gonna do it, commit, right? right? <laughs> so true. So, uh, can we talk about the 180 rule? Yes. Okay, great. So the 180 rule, and if you're not familiar with what the 180 degree yeah. rule is, it's this basic tenant in filmmaking that whenever you're shooting a scene. You shoot it from a certain perspective in order to allow the audience to understand the geography of the room and the characters within it. And to give you kind of a visual, imagine there's a beach. There's this perfectly straight beach. You have water on one side and sandy beach on the other. Now let's put two characters in the sand just at the edge of the water. And those characters are facing each other. Now you're gonna shoot that scene from the water. And now your 180 degree degree rule is that is that waterline is the coastline itself, and so if you're going to stay within the rule, you're not going to break that that waterline. You're never going to shoot the with your feet in the sand because now you've broken that rule and everything looks weird whenever you're editing. So if you're going to shoot those characters right, you're going to stand in the water. You're going to get really close to the character on the right, and you're going to shoot over his shoulder, looking at the character on the left. And then you're going to walk over to get the coverage of that other guy. You're going to walk over to the character on the left, still in the water, and you're going to shoot over his shoulder to the character on the right. And in that way, whenever you're cutting back and forth, those characters' heads will be in different positions and their eye lines and their, all their features are going to be in different positions. And it helps orient in the edit the, the audience and it doesn't create any jarring effects. Now, if you break that rule, 
you should be doing it with a specific intention, not just because you think it looks cool or if the the characters suddenly, I don't know, uh, look better in this other lighting. No, you just need to change your lighting <laughs> in order to get it right. And so it has to be done with intention. And, it, and, and The Departed, they're constantly breaking this rule where they're showing you sections of the scene that wouldn't normally be shown if you're following the rule. So let's look at the double kid scene whenever you have... Bill is being sat down in front of Queenan and Dignum for the first time. And what's interesting is right from the very beginning of this scene, they're already breaking the rule by using these POV shots. We're watching a POV shot up from Bill's point of view. He's looking at Queenan and Dignum. And then you have a reverse POV of Bill from their perspective. And in that way, you've already broken the rule. We've shown both halves of this room. And... I think it's doing it with a very specific intention. Scorsese is no slouch. He, he's a master of his craft. So we're both losing our centered perspective and also seeing more of the room. And why I think that's relevant is because it's adding context to the room as we're getting context of Bill's life and his personality. We also start to lose our orientation as the scene progresses, which reflects Bill's world being disoriented and we're playing with the access, it's a great way to emotionally connect us with what Bill's experiencing because he's being disoriented too as he's being interrogated and grilled by Dignum specifically. But Queenan eventually even chirps up that, you know, he's uh, Dignum's right. You're not going to be a cop in four years. Um, he's just kind of giving them giving them the what for <laughs> as he always does as he always does and then you have the if we progress a little bit we have the the scene where dignum is now briefing ellerby's costello squad right ellerby played by alec baldwin ellerby is giving the the spiel about we're going after costello we're going to be hard asses blah 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 and you're my special squad well then he brings in dignum And this is a really interesting scene, too, because we're doing the same thing we were doing a minute ago. And that's this whole film is about parallels. They're paralleling Bill's world with uh, Sullivan's world. And they're doing it in the, the cinema language, too, the camera work, because we're suddenly doing the same thing again. We're looking at their perspective, all the cops, but specifically Sullivan. We're doing the POV thing again. We're watching all the detectives on one side, and we're seeing Ellerby and Dignam on the other side. And so we're separating the leaders from the followers. Plus, this is where it gets really good to me. You have this great sliding movement that happens when Dignam and Ellerby start to argue about informants. Um, Because, right... Ellerby is wanting access to those informants and Dignam's like, you know, go F yourself. And so they start to insert these sliding moves, these dolly movements, which helps, you know, accentuate that those two guys are on opposite sides as well. They're not on the same page either. And so we've divided the room up very evenly and quickly to see, you know, from a visual standpoint, who's together. Nobody's together. (laughs) Yeah. It's all it's all smashed up. And speaking speaking of smashed up things, we also had the section where Costello is smashing Bill's arm. Frank, right, is just beating the hell out of that broken arm. Yeah. And what's great is he breaks the access when Frank says the mafia guys are taken care of. Bill's now being taken care of by Costello. And they break that access, I think, to kind of put Bill into a new light, into a new perspective. Now, 
that's how Costello, Frank, is seeing him. He's like, okay, you know what? Maybe you are one of us. And now the view, the perspective has changed both metaphorically, symbolically, and literally through the camera movement. And so it's just this really that's crazy, wow. convenient way to reflect what's happening emotionally um, with, and symbolically with these characters on a very practical, visual level. Yeah. I like it. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, why I, I was just... Not off-put. That's the wrong way to put it. It, it, Just I could never ground myself. Mm. And I think that that's amazing that that, you need to feel like that when you watch a movie like this because if you ever feel grounded, then you're not watching the right characters because nobody is ever grounded. I mean, everybody is always fighting against each other or fighting for something else or lying about something or killing someone or whatever. And also you kind of have to pay it. You have to pay attention. And by breaking these rule, this, this rule all the time, I feel like I'm constantly asking myself, where am I the whole time? Where am I? Oh, okay. Wait, by breaking the rule, like, like you mentioned earlier, I get to see more of the space, but it's less familiar. So yes, it's ba- It's set in Boston. I understand that. Le- I like, I feel that less even though I get to see more of the city, more of the settings. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's in Boston just because the way they talk and their (laughs) accents are perfect, but I don't feel Boston. Like when you watch a movie that's in New York or that's in LA, you feel it. Like you just know where it is and even Boston. But by breaking this rule, I'm constantly questioning where I am subconsciously. I'm not, not like outwardly. Okay. Where am I? Right. But just subconsciously, Oh, okay. We're in this bar, you know, or wherever we are. And so I'm never really settled and neither are the characters. Neither are are the characters, right? It's so key because this whole film is tension because whether you're watching Bill or you're watching Sullivan, you're constantly on edge about them getting caught or getting found out. And what's going to happen next is the ultimate question that we kind of feel in our bones. And to your point, like that breaking that rule constantly unsettles you and makes you feel discomforted uh, so that you do have to engage a little bit more. Yeah, that's yeah. really dang cool. So good. And just a slight note, too, on three point lighting. Personally, I'm not a big fan of three-point lighting. It's this idea that whenever you're lighting a scene or a person for a scene, whatever, you have three main lights. You have your big bright light that they call the key light. That's typically going to be not directly in front, but if you imagine Richard Nixon doing his, I'm not a crook fingers, one of those fingers are going to be either the right hand or left hand. That's probably going to be where you're going to set your key And then the other one is going to be the second light, which is called the fill light, which doesn't necessarily have to be an actual light. It could be like a reflector, bounce card, whatever. It could be a window, what have you. And then you have your backlight, which helps separate the character from the background. Now, there's a scene here when they're in the hospital early on and you have Bill watching his mother pass and he's being visited by like his uncle, I think. And his uncle is like a total jackass. But that scene is so weird to me because there's such a strong, heavy backlight. It's so bright and so hard that it separates his uncle out from the scene so hard 
that it looks like he's being green screened. <laughs> like it looks, I'll put up a frame. You can see yeah, it in the show notes yeah. at the pestlepodcast.com slash the departed. I'll put up a frame of what I'm talking about. It looks ridiculous. And I, again, if you, you have to go in, I guess, giving credit to the filmmaker and saying he did this intentionally. And with that in, in mind, I would say that that's to make the uncle not a part of the scene. And he's yeah. not going to be around very long. Yeah. He doesn't belong here. He'll be gone soon. And so that's kind of inherited through the visuals. But it also, for, for me as a filmmaker, I'm like, oh, just one more reason why I hate three-point lighting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I don't. I like single. I'm more of a Deacons guy. I like single source lighting. No, Don't even do a fill. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> All beside the point. There's a lot of three-point lighting in this film. But it's still beautiful. It's Freaking Scorsese. Yeah. But diving into the theme. So, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll try. At the beginning. Yeah, that's that's correct. We could become cops or criminals. This is Frank Costello. We could become cops or criminals. But my question basically is, when you're facing a loaded gun, what's the difference? I think that's the theme here. It's that question. What's the difference? Because let's just analyze a little bit here. The cops through Queenan and Dignam, are using Bill to catch Frank. Well, let's look at what Bill does as an undercover. He deals drugs. (laughs) He beats people, right? He shoots a guy in the knee in order to get info about Frank. That is very much indirect, you know. Now, it's not on the order, but he's doing this all as a cop. And he even assists a murder. Mm -hmm. Like, holy crap. This is our good guy, ladies and gentlemen. But then let's look at the way Frank uses Sullivan to beat the cops. And so Sullivan, right, is helping a criminal. And he commits murder, right, with a knife to conceal his identity in the the little alleyway outside the, the porn theater. And that's not good either. So whether it's a good guy acting the part of a bad guy or a bad guy acting the part as a good guy, they're all doing really criminal shit. Yeah. <laughs> no one's doing anything good. But then it's interesting, too, the commonality between Frank Costello and Bill Costigan. Because neither one of them think very highly of cops. They don't think much of cops. Bill, right, he says, they signed up to use their we- weapons, but watched enough TV to know they should feel guilty when they do. That's when he's talking to the, uh, the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, what's her name? It is... Madeline, when he's talking to Madeline, right? Oh, yeah. he, he's like spitting knowledge about that. And Frank feels the same way. He's, or, or Sullivan feels the same way, I should say. I'll arrest innocent people. He's joking with, once again, he's talking to Madeline when he says this. This goes back to that whole parallel. You're seeing both of their worlds as closely symbolized or uh, paralleled as possible. And so Sullivan is talking to Madeline. And he's talking about how he feels about cops effectively by saying what he can get away with as a cop. And he's joking, but he's not really joking. I'll arrest innocent people. I'll arrest you right now. My word against yours. And it comes out as a joke and they're laughing. And it feels completely authentically as a joke. But there's a really deadly ring of truth to it because he's right. It is his word against hers. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, his word counts for way more. And they both uh, they both have consciences. Right. Bill gets severe anxiety and panic attacks after assisting the murder. Right. He starts to really physically crumble. 
But Sullivan also has a conscience. Uh, he gets ED, right? He gets erectile dysfunction after bailing out Frank by pretending to be an attorney, right? When he goes into that room and he yeah. tells him, hey, make that phone call. Tell them that they're coming. And he does. And afterwards, he has a very physical reaction to it because he does, at the end of the day, still have a conscience. But there's still very clearly contrasting worlds. Sullivan gets the cushy, glamorous detective job, right? And Bill goes to jail to be an undercover. He has to spend time yeah. with the, the worst of the worst, quote-unquote. But then Sullivan, you know, he's on this nice day to the French restaurant, and they're intercutting that with Bill getting his uh, arm broken. His broken arm is being fixed by the doctor. Yeah. That's his nice date for the night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, extracting back further, the FBI protects Frank and legitimizes Frank's crimes in order to catch other c criminals. That's really jacked up. I mean, when we're asking that question, that central thematic question, what's the difference? Really, what is the difference? If the FBI is giving a blank check to a criminal in order to catch other criminals, and even worse, the worst part of that, maybe, I don't know about the worst part, but maybe it's that it's ineffective. Because <laughs> what does Frank say? He uh, never yeah. gave up anybody who wasn't going down anyway. Yeah. And so he's basically just got this blank check to do crime. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so... Yeah, I kind of war with that a little bit. I mean, there's got to be a difference. Now, I think that, there, that it's blurry in a lot of cases. I think it's blurry in this case. But, you know, if you're looking at Billy and the difference between Billy and Frank, they both do the same stuff. But you as a viewer feel different about mm -hmm. both of them. You're for Billy. A hundred percent you're for Billy. Yep. And you're not for Frank. Why? That is an interesting question. And so to me, it brings up the question of who's to blame for everyone's predicament. Why is Bill undercover? Why is Frank a thing at all? Why do we care about any of this? And this is me going to be, I'm going to start pondering like a mofo here. But I think it might be subtly pointing to our lawmakers as the culprits. And therefore, maybe to everyone, to society as a whole, because ultimately the law is a reflection of the society for better and worse. And you have this scene, right, where Ellerby is phone tapping or doing, you know, doing this subterfuge, well, this covert stuff. And he makes this comment, which was very pointed at the time, where he says, Patriot Act, I love it. And after 9-11, right, you had the mm -hmm. Bush administration pass this really terrible Patriot Act that allowed basically the surveillance state to take allows. place. Allows. Allows, correct. It's mm -hmm. an ongoing thing. And it gave rise to this also this idea of see something, say something, which I think is really well reflected by Mr. French when he says it's a nation of rats. Yeah. And in that way, no one is who you think they are. The therapist who believes in the good of people, she's unfaithful. Mm -hmm. 
you have right that sex scene which incidentally i just to dive into that is a really interesting scene it's a slow scene it's calmly undressing it's not a frantic mindless instinct that's happening it's not she the throes of passion she, she knows what she's doing very much knows exactly what she's choice. doing yep. yes and i love that because it goes back into cogent being cogent of her actions but then you also have frank as a crime lord right and he's an informant to the fbi no one is who you think they are and you also have bill ask a really great question he asks, i look around and i'm surrounded by murderers and wonder if i could commit murder what's the difference that's what he says. And it's asking this great, great question of what's the difference between being surrounded by murderers and being one? Are you complicit to what you surround yourself with? Are there innocent bad guys? Are there innocent good guys or cops? If you're around people, you know, doing the wrong thing, yeah. is there a difference? I personally don't think there is. We'll, we'll see if we get back into that. Yeah. But is any it also made me ask this question that's kind of an aside but is anyone good at their job <laughs> you have bill and sullivan keep getting promoted <laughs> they're both moles and rats in their you know organizations frank trusted bill more than sullivan right yeah and Sullivan was promoted to find the mole. No one seems to be very good at their job in yeah, these organizations. These guys are, yeah. Well, these guys are trying the hardest because they'll they'll get killed if they don't. That's a good point. <laughs> they have a little bit more motivation than making that three percent raise. That's a really great point. Yeah. And then at the end, of course, practically everyone dies. What's the Spoiler. difference? Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's the difference? What's the point? I don't know. I think there's. There's an interesting, we'll, we'll come back to that question in, in a second, but that final shot I think is really, really interesting because it might highlight what I'm talking about here about the lawmakers being the real culprits. Because in that final shot with the baguettes on the floor, a rat runs in front of the state house and the state house is, becomes kind of a, a character in itself as we keep seeing it continually, whether anytime Sullivan is at home, right? The state house is right out his window, whether it's whenever he moves in with uh, Madeline or he gets his new place. The state house is kind of this overwhelming presence throughout the film. And that final shot has multiple layers to it. For one, the rat is a great, simple, easy punchline yeah. because it kind of calls back to Frank Costello, that big overacted scene about the, the rat. There's a... There's yeah. a rat, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it just it just gets a laugh out of you because it's a simple one shot. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> because it's Jack Nicholson. Because it's Nicholson and you have a rat. It's yeah. like it's funny. But the next layer, I think, would be uh, the rat prevented Sullivan from achieving his goals. Right. You have Sullivan dead in that scene. And the reason he's dead is because of the rat in his real organization, which is uh, the mob, uh, Frank's group, and being Bill. Bill was that rat that ultimately got Sullivan killed because he sent those tapes to Dignam. Mm -hmm. And that was why Dignam knew this guy is uh, a dirtbag that I'm going to deal with justice in my own way. But then the next layer would be, and this is my favorite one, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> you have the rat sitting in front of the state house. I think you could say that the state house of lawmakers oh, yeah. are filled with rats mm -hmm. because we send them there with one goal in mind. And in reality, they're fulfilling their own purposes. Mm -hmm. We're at cross purposes with our lawmakers. 
and it happens and we won't have to get into actual politics. I'm not trying to do that. But I think conceptually, it's a really strong statement. I mean, I think I don't think there's anybody listening that would disagree (laughs) with that. I think think you're right. (laughs) Right. If you're happy with your lawmakers, you don't live in the United States of America. There's nobody, nobody making any laws that mean anything Mm -hmm. right now anyway. So, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And so thematically, it's asking this really profound question. What's the difference between these two groups of people and specifically these two moles? Right. And I think the answer lies in that final shot is the difference are the people who's creating that boundary in the first place. Hmm. And it's the lawmakers. Hmm. I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's a lot to chew on and it can certainly be, you know, discussed and pulled apart and argued against. I'm sure. I don't know what those arguments would necessarily be, but. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, if you, you know, if you kill someone, you kill someone and it's. It's kind of, it doesn't matter if you, your intention, mm-hmm. right, as to why it, it just is a bad thing, right? So it, it's against the law and uh, it's a bad thing. But if you were never, I get, I'm trying to think of the way to say this, you know, because I agree, I agree with you, right? To be, okay, well, let me back up just a hair. To be fair, they're creating an ambiguous, ambiguous world, in order to, I feel like, intentionally tease these concepts apart, whereas neither organization is really doing anything worthwhile. I feel like, why are they even going after Costello? It's not really well grounded. I think there is a reason Costello should be taken down, and that reason would also preclude the FBI from bailing him out. And that's one of the ways I also want to reemphasize that the law side of things is really screwed up. They're at a cross ends in and of themselves. Even if you take away Sullivan, they're at a cross ends, uh, cross paths purposes. Right, but if uh, by law, if you were to, if the law were to have seen what Dignam and Queenan were doing, forcing Billy to stay in this, the, the law probably would have said, no, 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 we're pulling this guy out. If you're just looking at the law, yeah, right. So by saying that then you're saying you can't necessarily say that they are the same as the bad guys, right? Or the law is the same as the bad guys, hmm. right? So because the law is, is only as good as the people that enforce it. Correct. Right. So, I mean, essentially the best guy, quote unquote, in this movie is still a murderer, Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah. He's the right. only one left alive. Uh, Dignum. I, so, so there's, a, there's like a, a difference here. It's the, it's, there's the law, which is supposed to be quote unquote inherently good, but then there, but the law is only as good as the people that enforce it who are not inherently good. <laughs> right. I mean, but their intention is good. And that's Isn't the, it right? Their intention is I want to take this guy who's a murderer, who deals drugs, who hurts people. people. Yeah. I want to take him off the streets. Like that's their goal. It's a worthy goal. Right. It's a worthy goal. Mm-hmm. Now he's harming far, people. Right. And so how far do you go with that? Okay. You find a guy who, you know, you don't necessarily like who you're not, you don't want to let to be a cop, but who wants to do something. Right. And you say, this is what you can do you have your choice and he chooses to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So who's the, who's the worst guy is the, is the, out of this group is the worst guy, Billy go, who goes in and stays in or is the worst guy, Dignam and Queenan who 
force him to stay in by not pulling him out. Because it really limits Bill's options. Yeah. Because he has to see it through in order effectively to get his identity back, to get his life back. Yeah. So, so you're, what you were saying earlier, you know, you are who you hang around with essentially. So if you hang around with murderers, you're a murderer. Um, because you're just letting it happen. This kind of is like its own thing in this film because he's trapped. He has to stay in it. He has to be a murderer. He has to allow it to happen and be there and almost support it. Otherwise, he'll be killed. Yeah. So is he bad, really? He's trapped. It feels like a race to the bottom. (laughs) 100%. Oh, wow. I couldn't have said it better myself. But what I also want to emphasize is the importance of theme in general when you're creating a film of any kind, really, but especially a feature film. Because if you're without a theme, there's no weight to what you're trying to tell. And even if you don't know what the theme is after you're watching a movie, the the fact that it's there really impacts you emotionally and your ability to understand what's at stake and what's happening. And in this case, you know, whenever you're writing a theme, what is this story about? The Departed, what is this about? It's a story about moles, undercovers, informants. And so naturally, that brings about themes of trust and deception. And therefore, you start to extract every scene. Every scene and conversation revolves around these things. Like even some of the things that seem like throwaway scenes, there's this great symbolic scene early on whenever they're in training and you have this cop who's discussing hollow point bullets and he's in front of his class and he's like, and here we have a hollow point bullet and he's kind of droning a little bit. But it's really interesting because if you dissect what that bullet is and what he's talking about it still revolves around these themes of moles trust deception undercovers because one little bullet a hollow point enters and it fragments and it wreaks havoc on the body because it's entered into something that it wasn't supposed to be in that's what a mole does it enters into a a thing that is not supposed to be in and it tries to disseminate and, and infect this area, this place, the body of the cops, the body of the, the mob organization. It's just one of the ultimate ways that separates bad movies from good ones is having a good theme and how well you execute on it. Mm-hmm. It's so crucial. And it's cool because this, this theme, because I, I agree with you that that's the theme for sure, that this theme isn't really revealed until the end. Until the last shot. It's interesting. Right? Because you've, you've kind of, you feel like there's something there, mm-hmm. but you don't know what the reason for this film is until that last shot. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's thick. Yeah. And then separately, one quick minor note. The acting, so all of the, to your point earlier, like the acting is all awesome. And I, I agree with everything you said about Martin Sheen. Like he is an understated character by design or not. I don't really know, but he is the most understated character in this whole thing. And I love to hear you kind of just walk yourself through that because I think you're right. Like there's so much other chaos that you do have this kind of eye of the storm that, that brings a little bit of calmness to everything else that's happening but there's this great great scene uh, moment in the shootout and it goes back to a conversation uh, joe Housen and i had a while back mr french gets shot right and he just keeps driving and his reaction is like this surprise the shock of you effing shot me 
that's what he says. He just kind of looks at it, startled. You, you effing shot me. And then he crashes and kills himself. <laughs> that was just, I love that simplicity of him getting shot and his reaction to it. There's been a lot of, uh, of, of actual science behind that. Usually when people get shot, they don't feel it. They don't know that they got shot. And so when they see that they got shot, it's a reaction of shock, of surprise that they actually were shot because the brain just cannot process that massive amount of information that like that fast. Normally, mm-hmm. I mean, if it's in an extremity or something like a hand or something where you immediately see it, it's different. But if you get shot in the chest, a lot there's been a lot of reports of people saying, I didn't even know it until I l- looked and I'm like, Oh, I've been hit just because you, you just don't expect to get shot usually. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, maybe if you're normally in shootouts, <laughs> you're like, I'm Brian, maybe I'll get shot it. today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but to, yeah. to your point, like I have a buddy and he was telling me about this time when he got in a fight in a crowd, he was with his sister and a couple of buddies and this big fight broke out and they got in the car and they were driving away and his sister looks down and is like, are you bleeding? And he he got stabbed in the stomach and like didn't even know it didn't even know it yeah adrenaline and he just yeah he just thought he got punched that's crazy yeah so very realistic very very realistic in that way (laughs) but it's but it's awesome you know because most directors they wouldn't it wouldn't be that way, right? Yeah, it's super dramatic. It'd be like, oh, you know, his body flailing or, or whatever, you know. But no, let's 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 do this a totally different way. Yeah. Let's be realistic. I, yeah, or or maybe he didn't really know that that is a thing and just did it because we've always seen people flail about. How about you be shocked that this happened? Surprised? Hmm. Okay. That's- and so I, I can imagine like they probably did five or six different takes of different in different ways. Mm. And then they get in the editing room and he's like, oh, no, it's that one. Yeah, that's the guy. It's, it's definitely <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. Scorsese, um, the master. Indeed. So what's your reco for the next week? I'm going to recommend. Normally, I try to stay really, really on, on topic. You do. You do. Um, this one, I'm going astray because I saw a film in theater that I'm like, I really want people to go watch it while it's still in theater because it'll wreck your day in the worst way possible. Oh. So go see Hereditary. Oh, man. I'm <laughs> nervous. You will have nightmares. It's guaranteed. Oh, I am. Really? Oh, God. Uh, man, I'm so nervous. I'll put a trailer in the show notes so that if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to the show notes at thepestpodcast.com slash the departed and see the trailer. But if my recommendation is don't even do that, just Google it. Well, it doesn't really give you a whole lot. That's true. It really doesn't. I mean, I, I'm, I don't have even seen the film, but yeah. I can't, I can't tell you what it's about. Yeah. Really. <laughs> you really can't. I couldn't even when I went, sat down, I'd seen the trailer like 10 or 15 times cause <sighs> it was playing in front of every Alamo draft house movie. It's like, you know, when I go to the movies, I don't want to work. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> the scary movies, I got to work, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Right. I want to go shut my brain off. Not like, like, you know, like, I don't know. If you kept up for the next <laughs> six hours. Yeah. Something about being scared is totally different from anything else. Agreed. Anyway. What do you, what about you? What do you got? Yeah. I'm going to stick with the DiCaprio theme here and go with a film I watched last night. Ooh. Inception. Nice. Yes. Definitely. I mean, Nolan is one of my, 
one of my favorite directors for sure. And, uh, he and his brother wrote this film and it's just amazing. Amazing. And, and there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you should definitely check out. Like the hallway fight scene, how they built that they Mm -hmm. actually built it and how they shot it and everything is just amazing. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So don't forget to drop us a review in iTunes or Google Android play box. I don't know what it's called. (laughs) What are the kids using these days? (laughs) Yep. That sounds right. on Ram radio. (laughs) And leave us a review. Tell us what you want us to do. Um, this was a request by my buddy show. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Shamari. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, buddy. If you haven't left a review already, then you're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> and stay tuned next week. We're going to be doing almost famous. Yeah. I can't wait to dig back into that one. God. It's been a long time. Yeah. It's such a good movie. Yeah. Don't, Oh, you can, I'm sure we've already said it like a few times, but you can go to the pestlepodcast.com slash the departed. If you want to add to this conversation about yeah. this episode, I'd love to hear your thoughts and about how wrong I am politely about, <laughs> or, uh, or otherwise, yeah, whatever, just a response. Be good. <laughs> Oh, all right. So let's see what we got for the quote of the day here. This one is by J. Edgar Hoover. Justice is incidental to law and order. That's a rough one coming from that guy. So J. Edgar Hoover founded the FBI. Oh, man. For him to basically view justice as this kind of byproduct of law and order, like, hey, if justice happens, cool. But we're going to have law and order. By Mm -hmm. God, Uh, that's scary and it kind of makes sense whenever you consider uh something look the stuff that like in the departed with you have a mob boss who's being protected by the fbi i can buy into that i don't know for a fact that it happens but we know similar things have happened right because i, I want to say the departed is loosely based on whitey bulger who was a uh, uh, an informant who was a gangster turned informant and routed out a bunch of people. But it worked out. I don't know how it worked out for him. Maybe he got popped. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But the idea, though, is that they gave immunity to, to someone who did really terrible stuff in order to get a bunch of other guys. And maybe that's... Well, I mean, who's to say what... Yeah. yeah. Who's <laughs> to say what's good and what's bad in that, in that regard? I mean, it's all bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's rough, man. I don't know how to how to take that because, <laughs> you know, you, you know, we sit here and and we look at something like that and we say that's horrible. It's horrible, and it sounds it can sound like you and I or a lot of people think that all law and all law enforcement enforcement agencies and agents are are bad, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case, yeah. right? It's Correct. just absolutely not the case. I mean. I would say the majority, uh, uh, far beyond the majority, my son talks about wanting to be a cop. Like they probably grew up wanting to, you know, to, to like mm-hmm. be the good guy Yeah, for lack of a better term. To, Cops get the robbers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Black and white. You do good or you do bad. Mm-hmm. You're right. And it just, it just sucks because there are bad apples in when if you're just looking at on on the surface of of you know law enforcement in general there are bad apples for sure a lot of them but there are also really good apples right what we're talking about here is like way bigger 
you know, it is and it isn't. I think what's interesting about the conversation earlier uh, that Bill was was asking that question, like, what's the difference if you're surrounded by being a mur- murderers? It doesn't matter whether or not I could commit murder. I've already com- uh, condoned it by the people I surround myself with. And so yeah. whenever I think about the good apples being around the bad apples, that gives me pause. And that's that's what disheartens me about right but that's there's a there's a reason why you stay around those if you're if you're a cop one if you're a good apple and you're surrounded by bad apples and and you're speaking up against the bad apples and staying in there because you need more good guys that is that's that's amazing that's what i'm saying that i would i would give my life for someone like that yeah I my, I, my I have question. to believe that there are guys like that. Agreed. And I women, do too. I have to like believe that. it. Not because I actually believe it, because the alternative is so incredibly bleak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even those good apples are going to do, they're human. They're going to do bad things, right? Like wrong things. I wouldn't say bad things. Right, right. Wrong yeah. things. They're going to be wrong. You're going to mess up. Right. You're going to mess up. But do, messing up and doing things that are wrong just in general that you shouldn't be doing is like a totally, yeah. I, I don't know how to explain this. I, I keep stepping over my words, uh, but it's just, we have to believe that the people out there enforcing laws that we encounter on a day to day basis are doing it with the best intentions until they prove otherwise. Right. I, I agree that that's what we should believe. I'm not sure. I am sure that that's not what I believe. We've gotten, we, there's just so much power that's in, Oh, 100%. The law enforcement, you know, not, and I'm not just talking about cops I'm talking about every agency of government at every stage just has so much power. And and if you hold a gun in your day to day activities, Mm -hmm. that's a power that can't be easily taken back. Yeah. Nobody else does that for a living. And so in, in today's times, like I'm, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to get back to that place where I believe good intentions are on the way. But right now, that's not necessarily the case. I feel like you don't get the benefit of the doubt until you prove yourself to be so worthy you, of the trust. Okay, so so you see a police officer and you... I, I'm, I'm just asking. I'm saying... Mm-hmm. And, and to you, that is not someone who's there to serve and protect you. Correct. Until they serve and protect you. Correct. So if you have never gotten served and protected by a police officer, then there are none that are there to serve and protect. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going extreme, I know, but I'm just, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I would say that's inaccurate. Not necessarily from our world. You have had uh, at least one positive encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, And if anybody knows me, I'm not like a freaking troublemaker. I'm not, I don't go out and, and I've never had like really crazy run-ins with the law. I've had other people who have really crazy runs with the law and ended up dead and that kind of thing. And so I've I've certainly come from a place of this, there's struggle there in my, in my past for sure. But yeah, I would say at this point, if I see a cop, I'm, I'm going out of my way to either avoid them or to not show myself as any kind of threat. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, a while back I, I had a girlfriend and we were pulled over and I, turned the car off. 
I put my hands out the window. She was laughing. She thought it was funny. I was like, no, no, no. Like, you don't understand what part of town we're in and what assumptions they're probably making right now as they're walking up to the car. And so the best thing that I can do is to show them that I am absolutely zero threat until they can approach the car. And I do that with every car stop. Mm -hmm. I go out of my way to try to make sure they have zero reason to assume the worst. And I don't, and here's the thing. I don't necessarily blame cops for, for the predicament we're in. That's what I was going to ask. I, and this goes back to my analysis of this film, which yeah. is I blame the lawmakers that are giving them these laws to enforce. Because at the, end of, at the end of the day, they're, that's what their job is to enforce the laws on the books. They don't get to decide what's on the books. Um, and so I empathize a great deal with the cops. But at the same time, there's so much power that I don't think is given as much respect because you... You give someone that much power and there's that adage, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, whenever you're talking about the power over life and death, that's a pretty absolute power. Um, and I don't think it, it corrupts absolutely. I do believe there's a lot, there's an overwhelming amount of good cops out there. But whenever you start talking about power trips and how there's this ego that comes into play, I think they're probably, it's, it's a good time to start revisiting how we interact with cops and the, the, the process that's in place right now. I think it's maybe a good time for, for a revisit there. Uh, yeah. And I have a lot of ideas about that. We don't got to go into all that. Cause well, if you give someone a, if you give someone absolute power by giving them a gun yeah. and they are bored out of their mind for a long time, for years and they never use it. Mm-hmm. it, it I mean, you know, I think, uh, I know a lot of cops and a lot of times they don't do in a whole lot besides mm-hmm. pull people over and, you know, routine traffic stops and stuff like Speeding that. Speeding tickets. And yeah. And these are, these are good people, but mm-hmm. there is something, you know, if you're, if you're constantly holding a ball at some point, you're going to want to drop it on the ground and bounce it. Yeah. Right. That's just a ball. Imagine holding a gun. You have these tools. Right. And I'm not saying, you know, again, all of these are not, these are generalizations. They mm-hmm. are not statements about every single police officer yeah. that we know, but they are, they are important to realize that when you give that much power to someone and you say, don't use it, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, unless your life is at stake, then all of a sudden there's a, there's a lot less there's a lot smaller things that happen to you that make you think is, Oh, my life is at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you might be, you might use it uh, when you shouldn't. Yeah. And there's plenty of cases that, I mean, in the last year, much six months, much less last 10 years that support that argument. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so for you, it's more of a systematic thing. Totally. That starts there mm-hmm. and then it, it makes, weaves yeah, its way up. Because I think one of the one thing that gets down. lost out of the narrative is that cops aren't cops. Cops are people. Yeah. You don't build a cop. Yeah. A person gets a badge and a gun and that's the way it works. There's no superhuman capabilities that we're bestowing on, on an officer or even, you know, whatever FBI agent, CIA, yeah. you don't get superpowers. You're still just a human yeah. and you're still flawed. And I'm just willing to recognize that and say, Hey, I, that's what I, one of the things I love about this film is that they're asking all these really interesting questions. Um, if you, if you take the time, I guess, to, to see them there. And I love, I'm a gray area person. Like that's mm-hmm. what I really enjoy in life is 
to, to question the norms and say, well, what's another way to look at this? And I'm certainly carrying that out, you know, whenever I discuss, you know, law enforcement and laws itself. But yeah, if, if I were to hold anybody accountable, it would certainly start with the lawmakers. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Maybe better training. <laughs> that would be I don't a know how to end great. this conversation. Yeah, there's, I don't know, yeah. we dug a hole. So. We, we really did. <laughs> Whoever's editing this, you're going to have yeah. some fun with that. Anyway, thank you for everybody for joining us uh, on our rants yeah. uh, on The Departed. Again, go to thepestlepodcast.com uh, slash The Departed and leave a review and all that good jazz. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.